Wildwood Community Church exists to glorify God by connecting people to Christ, His worship, His community, and His mission. To contact us or for more information, see our website at wildwoodchurch.org. Now, as we gather here today, I also want to just orient us to where we're going to be in God's Word over the next five Sundays. We're going to be launching a brand new series today that we're calling Sink or Stand, and it's going to focus on Matthew chapters 14 and 15. Now, that's a title that requires just a little bit of explanation. And so let me share it with you this way. Many of us have found ourselves in situations in life where we had to either sink or swim. If you're starting at the University of Oklahoma uh, next week, you might feel like you're in a situation where you're either going to sink or you're going to learn to swim in those new waters. Uh, You might think about it this way, on that very first sales call that you went out on and you showed up in the parking lot and you went in and you're ready to give your pitch, you realize that in that moment you were either going to sink or you were going to swim. Parents, you might Uh, liken this to that moment where you have the child and the doctor places it in your arms and you realize I'm either going to sink or I'm going to learn to swim. Now, swimming is something that you and I kind of know how to do, but what's fascinating to me is when I look at Matthew chapters 14 and 15, I see Jesus training his disciples to be agents of change inside of our world. And the way that he does that is he does not put them in situations where they will either sink or swim. They knew how to swim. But he puts them in situations where they will either sink or learn to stand upon the water. And over the next five Sundays, we're going to look at what it looks like for us to trust God as he works through us in our lives. And so looking forward to that. Uh, today, we're going to kick that off by looking at the uh, Matthew chapter 14, verses 13 through 21, and the feeding of the 5,000. But before we get there, I want to just ask this simple question. We'll put it up here on the screen. I want you to fill in the blank in this sentence. I don't have enough blank. Okay? I don't have enough blank. So think, think about how you would answer that. I already heard somebody shout out their answer. Help. I, I understand that. Um, I'm not asking you to answer out loud, but just in your own spirit, in your own mind, how would you answer that question? I don't have enough blank. Some of you may answer that question, I don't have enough money. You look at the bills that you have, and they're, they're gathering, and they're collecting, and you don't have enough money for those, or you don't have enough money for the things that you would desire. Uh, for others of you, it might not be financial. It might be time. You might say, I just don't have enough time. There's a lot of things that, that you want to do, and the responsibilities between your workplace and your home and your family and your church, and you just wish you had a little more time. But for others, maybe it's not quite those concrete things. Maybe it's something that's a little more ethereal, something like courage. I don't have enough courage. In other words, you sense that you need to step into a situation that is challenging and you just don't know if you have the courage to do it. For others, it might be strength. I don't know if I have enough strength to walk away from the temptation that is so real in my life. For others, it it might be, I don't don't know if I, I have enough wisdom A friend is coming to me and they're asking for advice and I just don't know if I have wisdom enough to share in the situation that they're facing. 
You think about that question, how would you answer it? All of us might answer it a different way, but all of us can relate to the fact that there is at least one, maybe multiple areas of our life right now where we feel like we don't have enough. Well, what do we do in situations where we feel that way? Where do we turn? Who do we turn to? Well, today we're going to look at a story of the feeding of the 5,000 where the disciples are in a situation where they don't have enough and they learn to trust Christ in a radical way. And my hope is that this morning as we look at those verses together that we will find some encouragement for our lives as well. So we're going to look at Matthew chapter 14, verses 13 through 21, the story of the feeding of the 5,000. I want to read these verses for us, and then we'll back up and we'll see four different things as we walk our way through them today. Matthew chapter 14, beginning in verse 13, it says this. It says, Now when Jesus heard this, he withdrew from there in a boat to a desolate place by himself. But when the crowds heard it, they followed him on foot from the towns. And when he went ashore, he saw a great crowd, and he had compassion on them, and he healed their sick. Now when it was evening, the disciples came to him and said, This is a desolate place. The day is now over. Send the crowds away to go into the villages and buy food for themselves. But Jesus said, They need not go away. You give them something to eat. And they said to him, We have only five loaves here and two fish. And he said, Bring them here to me. Then he ordered the crowds to sit down on the grass, and taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and he said a blessing. Then he broke the loaves and he gave them to the disciples. And the disciples gave them to the crowds. And they all ate and were satisfied. And they took up 12 baskets full of broken pieces left over. And those who ate were about 5,000 men besides the women and the children. Now, friends, in these verses, we're going to see something about how we can trust God when we don't have enough. But before we get there, I want us to see the context of this story of the feeding of the 5,000. And the context really is what, what was happening at this moment in history. Now, from the other gospel accounts, all four gospel writers include this story, we find out that what was happening immediately before this was that Jesus had sent the disciples out in pairs on their very first mission trip. And they had just come back from that trip and were reporting to Jesus everything that had happened. Mark chapter 6 makes that quite clear. And so we find out that one of the things that's happening in the context is the disciples are coming back to Jesus. But it wasn't just the disciples of Jesus who were coming back to him, but actually in this moment, also, there were some disciples of John the Baptist that showed up. And the disciples of John the Baptist that showed up came with some bad news. Now, you might remember John the Baptist was the forerunner of Jesus. He's the one who baptized Jesus in the Jordan River. He was Jesus' cousin. He's the one who said of Jesus, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That John the Baptist. What we see happening in chapter 14, just before the verses I, I just read, is that John had been killed by Herod the Tetrarch, one of Herod the Great's sons who ruled a section of Israel at that time, had ordered John the Baptist to be headed basically on a dare. But make no mistake, Herod the Tetrarch didn't care for John the Baptist. He saw him as a threat. He didn't like what he was saying, and so he had him killed. 
And so just before we get to the verses we just read, Jesus is welcoming back his disciples who are sharing with him this good news of what had happened on their mission trip. And he's also receiving to himself disciples of John the Baptist who are sharing with him this really emotional and, and, and challenging news that John had been martyred for his faith. So what does Jesus do? Well, it says here that Jesus decided to get away by himself. Now, the other gospel writers let us know that he wasn't just getting away by himself, but he was getting away from the crowds. In other words, by himself, as Matthew says, includes the disciples. He says, my team, come here. We need to get away from the crowd so that we might be able to process the good news of your journey, but also so that we might grieve together the loss of my friend. And so he pulls them aside on the boat. Now, where were they? A map maybe will help us understand this a little bit. This is a map of Israel in, in the time of Jesus. And very near the top of that map is a little blue body of water that looks kind of like the shape of Africa. Do you see that up there? That's the Sea of Galilee. Now, just to the left of the top of the Sea of Galilee, you'll see a yellow star. And that yellow star is roughly where the city of Capernaum was. That's where Jesus was with his disciples when he got this news. Now, you'll notice that that yellow star actually is in a green piece of land called Galilee. Herod the Tetrarch was a ruler over two different areas of Israel at that point in time, the area of Galilee in the north and the area of Perea off to the east. When Jesus gets this news, he feels a little bit threatened because Herod, Luke 9 tells us, after killing John, turns his eye towards Jesus. And Jesus was not ready to offer his life just yet. There was some more ministry that he needed to do. And so Jesus gets in a boat with his disciples and moves from the land that Herod the Tetrarch ruled over to that red star in the area of Golanitis, which was an area that was ruled by a guy named Philip. So Jesus leaves Herod the Tetrarch's land to head to Philip's land, in part to process some alone time with his disciples, but also to avoid a premature end to his life. And so Jesus and the disciples begin to go. Now, Jesus chose to go by boat because it was on the boat that he would have the alone time with his disciples to catch up and to spend that time together. But the journey from where Jesus was in Capernaum to where he was headed in Bethsaida was a very short journey, only about six miles. They could have walked, but they didn't. They went on a boat so that they could be alone. But the crowds could still see them. I mean, you can imagine, when you think about the Sea of Galilee, it's not a very wide body of water. Look at a picture of the Sea of Galilee. That's me looking from one side of the Sea of Galilee to the other. And when Jesus and the disciples get in the boat in Capernaum and head to Bethsaida, the six-mile journey, they're moving kind of slowly, and they're moving not very far offshore. And so the crowd is able to walk along the shoreline, look out and go, there's Jesus, I wonder where he's headed, and they kept following him. Can you imagine this scene? And just like the cartoon snowball that starts small at the top of the mountain and ends this massive, you know, uh, ball of snow by the time it gets to the bottom, as maybe 50 people around Jesus in Capernaum turns into 100 as they walk along, by mile six, by the time they get to Bethsaida, that 50 or 100 people in Capernaum turns into 17 to 20,000 people. How does that happen? 
You know how it happens. You'll see some people walking along pointing at something, you stop and look. I spent some time in the national parks this summer. If you ever see people stop looking and pointing, there's probably a bear out there or something. You stop and you look. And that's the same thing that happened as they're pointing at Jesus on the water. They're like, what are you pointing at? What are you looking at? Well, we're following Jesus. Well, where's he headed? I don't know, but we're going to find out. And that crowd grows and grows and grows and grows. So that by the time he gets to Bethsaida, there's a crowd about the size that would fill the Chesapeake Energy Arena waiting for him there. In Matthew's gospel, he tells us there were 5,000 men, but when you add the women and children, safe estimate, somewhere between 10 and 20,000 people. That's who's waiting for him when he gets there. Now remember, Jesus has had a tough day. He just found out this news. He just wanted to get away. He wanted to spend some time with his team, and he finds this mob of people waiting for him when he lands. What does he do? What's well, beautiful to see Jesus in this context because Mark chapter 6 lets us know that he had compassion on them. Like a, they, they were like sheep without a shepherd, it says. Jesus didn't get off the boat and go, go away, you're driving me crazy. I can't get a moment to myself. He, he has compassion on them. Luke chapter 9 tells us that he opened his mouth. He began to preach this inspiring message. Was it a good message? It was awesome, friends. Jesus gave it. He gives an amazing message to the crowd. And then Matthew chapter 14 that we just read shows us that he healed the sick, cast out the demons, performed these amazing miracles. What does this context let us know? It lets us know that Jesus is Jesus even on a tough day. Friends, it's not necessarily the main thing for us to see in this passage, but the person of Christ is the star at the center of it all. You ever have wondered, you know, there's a lot of things happening in the world. Does Jesus care about me? Absolutely, he does. In the midst of everything that's happening, he welcomes the crowd. He teaches them. He has compassion on them. He heals them. The first thing that we see is in the context. But the second thing we see, I think, is significant, and that's this. Jesus wants to involve us in his work. He wants to involve us in his work. Friends, this story of the feeding of the 5,000 is a remarkable story inside of the Bible. And you're like, of course it's remarkable. It's, it's a miracle. Like, yeah, I know. But it's even remarkable among miracles. And here's how I know that. You realize that there's only one event that doesn't take place in the last week of Jesus' life that is recorded by all four gospel writers. Only one thing that all four gospel writers mention that's not in the last week of his life. You know what that event is? Feeding of the 5,000. Now, why is it that the disciples are so enamored with this event that they tell it again and again? That all four of them would, would include it inside of their gospel. Why is that? Well, it's because this miracle was a miracle not so much for the 5,000. This was a miracle for the twelve. This was a miracle that was designed in such a way that the 12 would never forget it because Jesus was going to involve them in the miracle. You see, Jesus, confronted with a bunch of hungry people at the end of the day, would have been well within his rights to tell them to go get something to eat. It's not like every time Jesus got together, he fed them all. It would have been well within his rights, well within his norms to send them away. It also was well within Jesus' power to simply go, be filled. And all of them 
would be filled and didn't need to eat. And yet Jesus does something different than either of those two things. He doesn't send them away, and he doesn't just say, be filled. Instead, what does he do? He engages in a a conversation with the disciples, and he says, I want you to give them something to eat. Jesus was going to involve them in the midst of the miracle. Friends, when God does a miracle, that's noteworthy. When God does a miracle through you, you never forget it. The disciples never forgot it. And they never forgot the message. And that message is preserved inside of Scripture and shared now with us as we read it to be reminded of the fact that the God of the universe wants to involve you in his work. He wants to involve you in his work. This is something that was very clear, very evident inside of the feeding of the 5,000. And it's something that is echoed throughout the remainder of the New Testament. You know, we, we see it in a number of different ways. When Jesus gathers his disciples on the mountaintop before he ascends, he gives them what we know of as the Great Commission in Matthew chapter 28, where he tells them to go and to make disciples of all the world. He, he's giving us an opportunity to be involved in his work. Not only that, but we see in Romans chapter 10 that we are called the beautiful feet of Christ. Beautiful are the feet of those who bring the good news. We are sent by God to be his hands and his feet in the world, bringing the good news, sharing a shoulder to cry on, being the encourager to those in need of encouragement. We are given that opportunity. We've been invited to be involved in God's work. Not only that, but we see in Ephesians 4 that Jesus, as he ascended to heaven, gave his spirit and gifts to members of churches so that they might build others up to fullness in Christ. Friends, what we see in the midst of this is that of all of the different ways that God could have designed us to be encouraged and grow in our faith, of all the different ways he could have designed for the gospel to go out to the ends of the earth, he chose to use us. That's why the miracle of the feeding of the 5,000 is so significant. It's a pattern. It's what Jesus does. He takes situations of need and he offers to use you and I to meet that need. That's the way that he chooses to do it. I think specifically when I think about this picture in Ephesians 4 of Jesus giving people back to the church to be a blessing, it just reminds us uh, that we are God's gift to this place. So I I want you just just to practice this. I want you to turn to somebody beside you and I want you to say this. I am God's gift to Wildwood. Would you say that? Just, I am God's gift to Wildwood. It's okay, you can do it. And, and now I want you to turn to somebody around you and I want you to say, you are God's gift to Wildwood. It's a little easier to say that one, isn't it? It's a little easier to say that one. But that's a reminder to us that Jesus has desires to use us in his work. It's his delivery mechanism for the encouragement and the hope that he desires us to have. It's the way he designed the church. We're we're, we're here not to watch some other people stand on the stage and do something, entertain us for a little while, tell us something we didn't know. You're here today because God wants to work through you to be an encouragement to those around you. Now, let me tell you something else that's a little odd. You are God's gift to your neighborhood. You're God's gift to your workplace. 
When you're driving home today, I want you to roll your windows down and shout out the window, I'm God's gift to Terrace Place or whatever your street is. Now, if you live in the dorms, that might feel a little odd. You're meeting somebody new this week, but just, just think about that. You are, are God's gift to that place. God's desire to impact the place where you live, the place where you work, the place where you go to school is through you. When you walk into Alcott Middle School this week, know that you are there in part as God's gift to that place. See, God desires to work through us. Now, here's the thing. When, when I say that, what do you think? What goes through your head? Why do you laugh whenever you have to say this to your neighbor? It's because we are inadequate to do that job. That's why. Why are you laughing? Because we're inadequate. You're going, yeah, yeah, yeah. Maybe somebody in this room is, but I'm not. You don't know me. I am inadequate for that task. Let me just share a revelation with everybody. We are all inadequate for the task that God has called us to do. We are inadequate to be God's gift to this place. We are inadequate to be God's gift to our neighborhood or our school or our workplace. We are absolutely inadequate. And you know what? The miracle of the feeding of the 5,000 is designed to demonstrate just that. Jesus doesn't gloss it over. He puts a spotlight on it. He doesn't want them to forget about it. He wants the disciples to know and inventory how inadequate they actually are for the task. And that happens through kind of a, a funny dialogue that goes back and forth with the disciples. So in, in all the different, again, this is written in all four Gospels, and so when you put all of the conversations together, you get a sense of some of the comedy that happens inside of this conversation. So Jesus says, okay, there's all these people. Um, I think we ought to give them something to eat. And in Mark 6, chapter, uh, chapter 6, verse 38, Jesus said to them, how many loaves do you have? Go and see. Now, what a funny thing to say, as if they had a Walmart super center with them, right? Go and see. I mean, he knows it's not enough, but he wants them to go and check it out anyway. He wants to shine a spotlight on it. And so they come back and they say, there's five and there's two fish. Now, Jesus continues the conversation and he asks Philip, he says to Philip, he says, hey, Philip, um, where do we get to find enough bread in this area in order to feed everybody? Now, why would he ask Philip that? Guess where Philip's hometown was? Bethsaida. He says, Philip, this is your town. Where's the best food in this town? We've got a few people to feed. Why don't you look into that? Philip's like, Jesus, I'm not sure there's enough bread in this town. Much less, here's what you got to know, it would cost us a year's wage in order to feed everybody. I mean, this is just seeming totally, totally impossible. And, you know, unless we want to give the disciples too much credit, I mean, Matthew talks about it, and he talks about the five and the two, says that's all they had. But you know what we see when we look at John chapter 6? John's a little more honest, I think, in, in giving us all of the details. Not that Matthew is dishonest, but John is giving us even more detail. John lets us know that the five loaves and the two fish weren't even the disciples. Andrew says, hey, there's this little boy. He's got this stuff. In other words, you know what that means? Guess what the disciples had? Zero. Zero. Friends, this miracle is set up to highlight their inadequacy. The first step to being used by God in any significant way 
is to realize that we don't have it in us. Sometimes we think just the opposite, don't we? We think, you know what, if I really want to be used by God, then I've got to have it all together. If I want to be able to be used by him to share the gospel with my neighbor, then I've got to have a perfect life. And I've got to know all of the answers. And I've got to have all of my act together. If I want to be able to have an impact in our children's ministry teaching the class that I just left and I'm wondering how do I get out of next week, if, if you're thinking that way right now, you're thinking I'm just inadequate for this task. If you're thinking I, I said yes to leading a small group this fall, but I don't know that I got it in me. Friends, if you are at that point where you think I don't have it in me, I'm inadequate for this task, guess what? That's step one to God being able to use you. God wants us to take an inventory of our lives and realize that on our own, we don't have what it takes. And here's why. It's not our work, it's God's work. I might have the resources and the ability to impact my work, but I can't do what God needs. When you think about what it takes to share the gospel with somebody, it's sharing a message with somebody that the Bible describes as spiritually dead and seeing them come to spiritual life. It's raising the dead, friends. We don't have the ability to do that. I don't care how well you can speak. I don't, know, I don't care how many evangelism seminars you've attended. It's beyond us. We're inadequate for that task. Now, every Sunday I get up here and I open the Bible and I, I'm scared to death. Why? Because I'm going to say, this is what God says. That's a, that's a frightening spot. Knowing that there's real needs of encouragement. There's real need of hope to be given. There's, there's real stuff on the line. Friends, I'm, I'm inadequate for that. In order for that to happen, the, the Spirit of God has to work. In order for that to happen in, in your spheres of influence and in the opportunities that you have, you, your first step is not to say, I'm enough. It's to say, I'm not enough. But here's the thing. This is the, great, this is the great truth, right? When we realize that we're not enough, where do we go? To the one who is enough. And this story so beautifully shows that. See, Jesus does his work through us as we dynamically depend upon him. The disciples didn't just inventory and found that they had nothing. What they got to see in this miracle was that Jesus had more than enough. And Jesus demonstrates this in, in such a beautiful way. I, I just love how Jesus demonstrated this. So, so he t- says, okay, give me what you got. They give him the, the five loaves and the two fish, and he thanks God for them, and he breaks it, and he places them in baskets, 12 baskets, 12 disciples. And then the other gospels tell us he, he has them sit down in groups of 50. So you can imagine, I, if I'm Andrew, I, I come up to Jesus and I get my basket And I think, well, this is going to be a futile task, but I'll do what you tell me to do. And I walk out here and, and, you know, here's first four rows. This is about 50 people. And so I've got my basket and I'm going to serve these people. And so Andrew passes here and everybody else is doing their thing. And he gets to the end and he gets his basket back. And he thinks, well, I need to go fill it again before I go to row number two, group number two. So he walks back thinking, well, it was nice that you were able to feed some Jesus, but there is no way there's going to be anything left for the next group. Andrew walks back, and guess what? Jesus fills it again, and then he goes to the next group, and he serves them. And then as it comes to the end, he thinks, well, surely this is it. 
It's amazing we made it this far. Remember, 20,000 people. Think about how many trips back and forth to groups of 50 that 12 men had to make. All the while, what is the message that Jesus is communicating to them? He's communicating this. You don't have it, but I do. In everything that you're going to give to them, you're going to get from me. That's what Jesus is saying. And he taught them a process of continually and consistently going back to him to get what they needed to deliver to others. This is the the pattern that Jesus set up that has continued all the way until today. Friends, when you think about the opportunities that God has, has placed before you in terms of your neighborhood or your workplace, or to reach out to those who don't know Christ. When you think of the opportunities he's placed before you to lead that small group or to lead that children's class or to pour into that group of young people in student ministry, when you think about the opportunities that God has placed before you this year to have an impact for him, how do we begin to organize our lives in a way that sets us up to see God do something great among us? Well, the first thing we do is we need to have a pattern of consistently going back to him. Every morning getting up, every every spending some time every day to to read and pray, to, to reflect on who God is and his faithfulness, to be dependent upon his spirit in a regular rhythm daily. That's that's where we find what we need. And that's true, friends, whether you are stepping into a new opportunity for the first time or whether you have taught the same Sunday school class for 40 years. You're still just as in need today as you were then for what God really wants to do. You're going back to him regularly. And not only that, but then are you faithful to deliver what God has taught you in those times? God wants to use all of us. He didn't use some of the 12. He used all of the 12 in this miracle. And God wants to use all of us. What are the opportunities that God has placed before you to reach out in your sphere of influence, to to sign up and help with food and shelter for friends, to, to, to serve a meal that way, to invest in ministry in your neighborhood or in your workplace or in the walls of the church in some way? What does it look like for you to deliver to others, see God do his work around you and through you this year? And then the third thing I think that you can't read this story without seeing is that there's more than enough left. When this miracle is over, what do each disciple have in their hands? A basket full of leftovers. In a day before Tupperware, that's quite a waste. But it's very intentional. It's intentional so that they would know that there's always enough. Friends, we will not trust God for more than he can provide. We're not going to find ourselves in a spot where God is just not enough for the situation. He may not give us exactly what we want. It may not work out the way that we intend or we hope, but know that God always has enough for whatever we are facing. And so we can trust him. You know, earlier on, put this question up here. I don't have enough blank. we know who does. 
and we have the chance to trust in him. Father, thank you for just the opportunity to, to trust you together this year, that you would do your work in and through us in the lives of others. Father, that we would be a people who would trust you for big things. And uh, Father, that you would um, be honored as we follow you. 